You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Grab your Bibles and turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we find ourselves in the New Testament. We're we're going through Ephesians and we're back on um, Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. We used to do Bible study at 7. We're doing it at 6 now um, over at, at at the building. And uh, we're going through Ephesians, and we went through just uh, the first few verses and kind of went over the outline of the, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus and uh, kind of got going on there. Uh, one of the big things that I find I have to encourage myself in, you know, we just talked about how Romans chapter 1 says even, even creation, the created things, speak to the glory of God and to his power, like his creation speaks to those things. But several weeks ago, I talked about the different ways which God reveals himself to us. Yes, in creation, but he also reveals himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He reveals himself to us and shows us who he is through Jesus. But one of the other ways that he has given to us, which a couple weeks ago I said um, it was a specific revelation. The word that gets used is special revelation, but specific is applicable as well. God gives us his word. And reveals himself to us through his word. And like we said in terms of how it is to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus and what it looks like, one of the things is is, is to love something, which God calls us to love him in response to his love for us, is that you can't love something you don't know. You, you can't truly love something. You could become infatuated with something. You could have real passion for something that, that maybe you've had a peripheral experience with. I've had all kinds of things. Who's, like, who's gone through the thing where they've had a million different hobbies, right? And tried all kinds of different things, right? And you got a garage full of gear because you were into the gear. The gear looked really cool. And you wanted to get into mountain climbing. And so you bought all the things. But when I'm not climbing any mountains. But if I needed to, I could, right? I, I was always influenced by, by movies and those kinds of things, right? So I remember the first time I saw the movie The Karate Kid. Anybody know Mr. Miyagi? The good one, not the new one with the Smith kid, but the, the old one. Um, which, that movie has probably played in our house more than any other movie in the 20 years we've been married. Like, it's played in our house, that and Lord of the Rings, but that's a whole different discussion. Um, but when Karate Kid came out, I, like every other kid in 1984 when that movie came out, fought... I'm going to become a karate master just like Daniel son, right? And so my aunt actually sewed me a little gi that had you guys are laughing at me now. I don't know why I tell you guys this stuff. But but she sewed me the whole thing and I basically used them as pajamas, you know, and so I had the whole karate thing with the belt. Of course I had a black belt because of course I knew karate. I'd seen the movie, you know. And and we're into stuff, right? But the truth is is when it when it comes down to really knowing the thing that you're into, boy, that takes time and it takes some information and someone has to teach you and and sort of the intricacies and the ins and outs of the thing that you're into, we have to learn those things. It's not just something that you could see at first glance and really deeply fall in love with that thing. And even like I've talked about before, movies, right? The whole idea of love at first sight. They saw each other across a crowded room and they knew from that moment on that they were gonna be together forever hogwash like that that just no that's not true and so i i really do believe this that to truly love something deeply you have to know it you have to understand it so that's why when you know a a couple two people are in a relationship perhaps they're attracted to each other at first glance they should be that's a part of it 
But then as they sit and talk and they get to know each other and they ask each other questions and they talk about the details of their life, all of a sudden that's where this affection, deep affection starts to bloom. Friendship starts to bloom, right? And starts to grow and deepen to the point of commitment where you say, I'll do anything for that person. I would give my life before that person lost their life, right? This is the idea of friendship with God, relationship with God. And if you think back to the Old Testament, who was it that was called the friend of God? Moses. Moses was called the friend of God. Why? Why was he called the friend of God? Because God would take Moses and he would meet with him and he would, he would talk to him and he would give him instruction. And this great, powerful Yahweh God on the mountaintop would meet with one of his creation and he would reveal his heart to him and his plans for his people and then say, here's what I want you to do, Moses. Go and tell my people what I've told you. This, this relationship that I'm cultivating and developing with you where you're getting to know me, I want you to share that with my people and I want them to get to know me as well, right? And the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, down below the mountaintop, they were freaked out, right? And rightfully so, because this was the God of lightning and thunder at the top of the mountain in the cloud. Like this was almighty God who sent plagues upon the nation of Israel, right? And so maybe you've had a relationship like that with God. Maybe from a distance you've looked at God and said, kind of freaked out. Not sure if I really want to get that close. But here's the thing. God has sent all of us who have gotten to know Jesus, who have become friends with God. He sends us out then to share that story. And we get to be friends with God as we learn about him. And we get to go tell other people about how good of a God he is and how good of a father he is. To do that, we have to read scripture. That's how God has revealed himself to us primarily. First in the person of Jesus but also in his scripture, what we call special or specific revelation. Now, here's why scripture is so important. This is why you'll hear preachers all the time talking about Bible study and church and and scripture, scripture, scripture. What's the big deal with scripture? Well, as you start to walk through God's word, you start to understand that he speaks to every area of life that we have need of. God speaks to our souls. The soul is defined as the union of our mind and our emotions, the logic that we can, that can be contained in our brains, the things that we understand, and then all of the feelings that we have about life around us, that's the definition of your soul, your mind and your emotions. God speaks to every area. He speaks to our logic. God can be understood to the length and depth that he has revealed himself to us. We have emotions. We have feelings. God speaks to our feelings. That's why we read through the Psalms so much. The Psalms are reflective of the deep emotions that we experience as humanity. Not only does God speak to our souls, but God speaks to our bodies. God gives us so much instruction in regard to what it looks like physically to be holy, right? Remember, we've talked about God calls us to be holy. He's holy, and so our pursuit has to be holiness. Well, is that just in our minds, the pursuit of holiness? Well, no. Scripture's chock full, especially in the New Testament, over the things in our bodies that we are called to pursue. God says, don't be drunk. Well, that's pretty scientifically proven over time, isn't that? That that if you get drunk constantly, your body's going to fail you. God says, don't be united in immoral relationships. Well, STDs are a good reason for that, right? Like you you can, listen, science proves, or rather God proves science all the time. We're not waiting for science to go, hey, we found the God particle. 
We found the God, the God gene, and we understand now what that is. No, as science discovers things, most often you can go to Scripture and go, yeah, God knew that when he told us that in the Bible, right? That's just the reality of things. So God speaks to our souls, our mind, and our emotions. He speaks to our bodies. Jesus said that he came to give us abundant life. That's in relationship to our physical bodies, the abundance of, of what God wants us to experience. And then also God speaks to, and perhaps this is one of the most important and affecting aspects of God's word. God speaks to our relationships. He speaks to the interaction that we have as his people. Father to children, husband to wife, brother to sister, friends. God speaks to all of these relationships throughout his scripture. Now, as we read through scripture, the reason we study it and do our best to be discerning as we read. That's why we take our time and go slowly. We call it verse by verse. Uh, you know, and we want to get everything out of it that we can and understand it. The reason we do that is, is not just to receive some form of spiritual therapy. I think a lot of times people think about Bible study or coming to church as a way to simply make themselves feel better, right? I, I feel better after a week of sinning when I go to church and, and I hear that God loves me. Like the song's great. Those are the kinds of songs, you know, God really loves us. Those are the kind of songs that make you want to be Pentecostal a little bit, right? And even if you're conservative and all these kinds of things, those are the songs that you're just like, yeah, I need to hear that God loves me. Why? Because I've been sinning all week and I'm pretty bad and I get that, right? But the truth is, is, that, is, that, is that we don't come to God. We don't come to his word. We don't read devotionally. We don't study simply to make ourselves feel better about our position. But rather the purpose of coming is to know God more fully. The purpose to read scripture and study scripture, scripture is to know God more fully and understand what we began learning on Wednesday night, which is that God has created all of us with a purpose. In fact, he thought about us before we ever existed and he had a purpose for us in creating us, knowing that we were going to sin knowing that we were not going to follow what God established in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, knowing that Adam as our federal head was going to fall to sin. God thought about us beforehand and predestined us, determined beforehand, that the purpose of our lives was to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what he created us for. If you ever have a question as to what your purpose in life is, what God, what's my purpose? Am I supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer? Uh, wrong question. That's not, you may have a job as a doctor or a lawyer or a school teacher or a mechanic or a construction. It doesn't matter. You may have a job and God may use you for his purpose in that job. Your purpose is to become more and more like Jesus day by day. That's what we're called to. We're, we've been created to be, and that word conform, I love it, right? To conform to something is to literally wrap yourself around it and take the shape of that thing. That's what it means to conform yourself. And so we're to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And the beauty of that is that God does that in a very special relational way. He does it through adoption. God loves us as sons and daughters. And he adopts us as sons and daughters in such a way that you and I, although we may have been far away from God, he brings us into his family and says, 
my son, Jesus, your older brother, everything that he gets, all of the inheritance, all of the blessings that he gets because he's the oldest son and he's perfect. Anybody got an older brother or sister? It's like, they're the perfect one. They're the one who's always got everything right, did everything right. And how come you can't be like your older sister? How come you can't be like your older brother, right? Right? It's not like that with God. He's not looking at Jesus and then looking at us and going, couldn't you be more like Jesus? Right? Think about that. You know, the Bible talks about, the Bible talks about Jesus' brothers, right? That he had brothers. Um, and, and obviously they were half-brothers because, you know, if they were the children of his, of his father's stepfather, Joseph, they wouldn't have been his blood brothers only through his mother Mary. But, but can you imagine being Jesus' brothers? And you go through the scriptures and you see the stories, you know they're a little bit ticked off. You know they're a little bit annoyed. In fact, they're standing outside of the house where Jesus is meeting with some people and someone tells Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're asking for you. And what does Jesus say? He goes, who, who, who are my brothers? These, my disciples, these are the ones that are truly my brothers. You think they weren't planning on like getting them out back afterwards and like, like beating them a couple times, like punching them, but he's the older brother, right? That's not how God looks at us and him. All of his inheritance, all of his perfection, all of the goodness that God exhibits through his son Jesus that is given to us when we're brought in and adopted by God. Now, in our study on Wednesday, this concept was introduced to us that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the shedding of his blood and the forgiveness of our sins, we're brought in, we've been adopted by God as sons and daughters and we have him to call Father. He's our Father. He, he's the one who cares for us and loves us and has a good plan for us. And then what, what I made note of is that throughout the letter to the Ephesians here, Paul has three prayers that are significant in this letter. And we're going to take a look at the first prayer today that Paul makes. But he makes three prayers throughout the six chapters as we divide it, this letter. The first prayer that, that we'll look at today is that Paul makes a prayer specifically for the Ephesians specifically for that gathering of the church. And we'll take a look at that. But the other two are that Paul later on makes a prayer for the church at large. And that's an important thing for us to understand, that even as we gather here in this local gathering of God's people, right, as brothers and sisters in Christ, this is just one part of the church. The church is not a singular building. It is not a singular denomination. It is everyone across the world, and I'll note this, across time who are in Christ. Do you realize that we are not, that, that, that those who are alive right now, we're not the, the extension of, or we're not the uh, limit of the church. That the church exists today with Jesus in eternity. We're connected to something much larger than just what we see around us. So Paul makes a prayer for the whole church later on in chapter four. And then finally in chapter six, Paul will teach us how we are to be praying for one another. But for today's purposes, take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And I'll read through the end of the chapter. It's a, it's a fairly lengthy section here, but bear with me as I read through it. And then we're going to take note of several things that are important for us to, to grow in our understanding of God this morning. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And here he begins to outline the things that he's asking God for, for the members of the church. In verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. There are three things, uh, three things I want to uh, draw out. Come on in. There are three things I want to draw out from the scriptures um, here in Paul's prayer for the church. And, and, and again, this he's speaking to a very specific group of people, and he speaks not just to the Ephesians church, but he speaks to us even now in, in 2021. And that's the beauty of the scripture is that it is eternal. God's word is eternal. And so I want you to notice three things that Paul prays for. The first thing I want you to notice is that Paul prays that the church would understand the hope that God has called us to. That's the first thing that I I want you to take note of. The hope that God has called us to. And this is how Paul says it in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's the first thing I want you to take note of. And here is the hope. I want you to hear this and understand this. This is the hope that we have been called to in our relationship to God through Jesus. Mark down Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I always encourage people to take notes, write things down, or write it in your phone because I move fairly quickly as I go through these things. I try and slow myself down. But this is the hope that Paul is talking about and what he's praying for the church. This is the hope that God has called us to. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now let me, let me stop for just a second and make sure, because as we read through Scripture, sometimes we can read a phrase or hear something and think that it means something that it doesn't actually mean. Now, When it says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, does that mean that all people are going to be saved? Is that God's plan? Is that everyone's going to be saved? As sad as it is to say it, the answer is no. But what it does mean, and what the author of Titus means, from Paul to Titus, he says that because God's grace has appeared, it has brought salvation for all manner of people. No matter who you are or where you come from. No matter what socioeconomic status you have, no matter what race you come from, no matter what country or place in the world that you come from, God's salvation is available to you. This is the idea when he says all people, all manner of people. And so God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all people or all manner of people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now here's that hope that Paul's praying for the church. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the hope that Paul wants the church to recognize and understand so much that he's praying that God will reveal this 
to the church. The hope that we have is the appearing of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, the things that we put hope in are are misplaced, right? When we look at the world around us and we see the chaos that's going on, regardless of what side of the political landscape you fall on, wherever that might be, oftentimes we think that our hope is in the politics of the day and age. If we get the right person in office, that's going to fix things, right? If we just get the right congressman or the senator, or if we change the governor of the state, all of a sudden, it's going to get better. And I think we all know, with any amount of experience, that just is not true. That's not accurate. So to put our hope in the political system that we live with, that's false hope. It's not bringing us anything that that draws us closer to God. When we put hope in money, our money, and say, now as long as I got this much in the bank, as long as I got this much in the investments, as long as I got this much for my bills and things, then then I'm okay, regardless of what happens. At least financially, I'm stable. Have you ever lost your job before? You ever have to live off the savings for a little bit, right? You ever have to go, uh, God, I'm not sure. That I finally understand, oh Lord, what it means for the ends not to meet. I didn't understand that phrase for a long time, like making ends meet. I kept thinking meet, M-E-A-T. What do you mean ends meet? Gosh, I'm dumb sometimes. But the ends of the month meeting together. Ah, I get it now. I got bills. <laughs> and somehow those bills aren't getting paid, Right? You ever get to the point where the money fails you? It's just not there. Or or there's not enough of it. You put your hope in money, you're going to be disappointed very quickly. What if you put your hope in a relationship? Put your hope in a person. I say this at every wedding I do, and I do this in terms of premarital counseling when I talk to people. The reality is, is that as much as you might be in love with the person that you're in love with, and you may think they're perfect, you may think they're wonderful, and you've got nothing but roses coming out your nose because you love them so much, like... (laughs) The truth is, is at some point, they're going to fail you sooner than later. They're going to fail. And you're going to go, that's not what I signed up for. They were supposed to be perfect, right? Like we were in love. And yet somehow they failed. So if you put your hope in a relationship or a person, the reality is it's going to fail at some point. They're going to fail you. But this is what Paul says. He says, the hope that we have in God, what he has given to us, this is how Paul prays for the church. I want you to understand this hope. He says says that the hope is in the appearing of Jesus Christ. There's language that we should use. There's things that we should, as brothers and sisters in Christ, there's things we should say to one another. And not with any sense of irony or not with any sense of exaggeration. But we should say, hey, praise the Lord when something good has happened. We should say, thank God. We should say things like, hallelujah. And we should say things like, Jesus, come. This was a common, common salutation within the early church. And we even see that in some of the letters that are recorded in scripture is, even so, come Lord Jesus. It's the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, right? 22. Like, that's, that's, That's how the entirety of scripture ends is even so, meaning whatever else is going on, come Lord Jesus. Why? Because that's our hope. Is that this life that we're living, no matter what's going on, good or bad, the thing we have to look forward to 
is that Jesus is coming. Listen, I've been in years, I've done counseling for years, whether it's marriage counseling, men counseling, addiction counseling, I've done all kinds of counseling. And there are certain circumstances in life and there are certain situations where the truth is, is that life stinks sometimes. And there's some other words I would use to describe it too, but I'm not going to right now. But the reality is that sometimes life just stinks. And even as a Christian, even as someone who follows Jesus and has the promise of salvation, the hope of salvation, sometimes life's just hard. And when you sit across from someone and they come to you and they say, Pastor, like, what about this situation in my life? And how come God hasn't fixed this? And what about the miracle? And all these kinds of things, right? Sometimes we have to say, listen, brother, listen, sister. The answer is that life is hard. And we're not promised anything this side of heaven except for the comfort that comes from knowing God, the presence of his Holy Spirit. And sometimes the answer, as crummy as it might be, is this. Hey, you have heaven to look forward to. That may not seem like a great answer at the moment when you're struggling. But the reality is this. If we have the hope of Jesus, then everything else falls under that. Everything else is prioritized and organized under that knowledge that Jesus is coming back for us. Amen? Amen. The second thing that Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, back in Ephesians chapter 1, he's asking that God would open the eyes and the hearts of the church there, that they would be enlightened. And he says, number one, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Number two, he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul is praying that the church would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. When we hear that we are brothers and sisters with Jesus and that because he's our older brother and that in the tradition of of the Far East in that time, the older brother got everything, right? In terms of inheritance of the family, if you were the second brother or the third brother or God forbid a girl, you got nothing. The older brother got everything. There was this prominence to that, right? Yeah, don't nod your head. I don't have anything. I don't, I don't have anything to. I don't have anything to give you anyway. Like, I'm telling you, you think I'm not watching up here? Thank goodness we don't live in that culture. <laughs> Thank goodness we don't live in that culture. But listen, listen. When 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 Paul talks about the inheritance here, it would have had significant meaning to these people. They would have understood that, that listen, Paul, this is revolutionary. If Jesus is the older brother, if he's the first son of God, right? Born over all creation, he gets all the inheritance. You're saying, God, that you're going to give me that inheritance? I get all of those good things that you've given to Jesus? And the answer is yes, that's what Paul's saying. I want you to understand that you're going to receive this glorious inheritance. But here's the catch. This is the part that's almost like getting socks on Christmas, okay? Here's the thing. Here's what Paul says is the glorious inheritance, right? I want you to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul says and prays for the church to understand that God's glorious inheritance to you and to me as brothers and sisters of Christ is each other. That's God's glorious inheritance. Nope, I want to hear about streets of gold. Nope, I want to hear about all the good things that you've got planned for me, God, right? The plans to prosper me and not to harm me. Listen, this is, this is revolutionary and this is so challenging at times, right? But the inheritance that God has given to Jesus, what did Jesus purchase with his blood? On the cross, us. 
He purchased you and me. We are his most prized possession so much so that he gave his life for us. This is the inheritance that Jesus desires, you and me to be brothers and sisters with him, right? And so the glory that God reveals to us that Paul wants the church to understand is that you (laughs) are each other's glorious inheritance. You may look around and just go, really? (laughs) Like I said, like I said, that's like getting socks for Christmas, right? Like, that's like, you got all this anticipation of like, it's Christmas and there's presents and all those kinds of things. And then you get socks and you got to be like, oh, thanks. I, I needed that. It feels like that because here's the reality. Here's the reality. Whether it's the most exciting thing or not, the truth is, is we need each other whether it's the most beautiful looking thing or the most exciting relationship we may ever have or not, the truth is is that God has prepared all of us to be in relationship with one another so that he can speak to us, so that he can reveal himself to us, so that he can correct us, so that he can encourage us, press us on to good works. That's what he uses us for, is in these relationships. That's why I've said so many times before, there's no such thing as a maverick Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who says, just me and my Bible, I'm going to go sit on top of the mountain and all the rest of you could burn. Like that just doesn't happen. It's not possible. And those that try to do that, Christians who try and seclude themselves or draw themselves away from fellowship, they end up crashing and burning because we can't do this by ourselves. The, 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 The last point that I made in terms of what it looks like to be a part of the church is community. We have to have each other. Yeah. And here's the thing, it's just like brothers and sisters. You don't get to choose who your brothers and sisters are. You're stuck with them. They just show up, right? Like, you, they just show up. You didn't invite them. You didn't ask mom, or maybe you did ask mom and dad for a baby and a baby showed up. You're like, that's not the one I wanted. You gave me another girl. I wanted a boy, right? The truth is, the truth is, hey, the truth is, we need each other, and we don't get to choose who we are. See, that's one of the things, that's one of the funny things as I look at the church, and I look at sort of how people move themselves around into which church fellowship they join themselves to. Oftentimes, it becomes this sort of popularity contest, right? Come to, come, come to our church. We got all the cool people. Or, or come to our church. We got all the musical people. Or come to our church. We got all the really brainy theological people, Right? And the reality is, is that there's such a diversity in God's people that each fellowship, each gathering of God's people together, wherever they might be, the truth is, is we need a little bit of all of that, right? We need some people who are just charismatic and love on people and welcome people into, their fe- into fellowship. We need some people who are skilled in leading things and music and hospitality. We need people who want to study the word and share that and encourage one another. We need a diversity of all that God has created, just like a family has a diversity of people and personalities. Now, that's the second thing that Paul prays for the church, is that we would understand the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Let me, let me make one reference here. Hebrews chapter 12. I love that Paul uses the word saints. Uh, I talked about this on Wednesday night. Um, and, and if ever you miss a Wednesday night study, it's always on the website, thewayeugene.org. You can always listen there. But Paul uses certain words that have been sort of um, uh, co-opted in other traditions or don't get used within our church traditions very much anymore. But the word saints is a word that gets used in scripture that the authors of the different letters of the New Testament say that if you're in the body of Christ, you're a saint. 
And, and again, we look at ourselves and go, I'm not a saint. There's no way you can call me a saint. I'm not perfect. Nobody's saying you are. In Christ, in Christ, we are referred to as the saints of God. And I love that phrase, and I think it's something we need to use more often. But Hebrews chapter 12, I want you to hear this in regard to sort of the riches of the inheritance in the saints that God has given to us. If you have time this week, read through Hebrews chapter 11. Perhaps you've read it before. If not, I really encourage you to read Hebrews 11, which tells stories of the the Old Testament characters who saw the promise of Jesus from far away in history. They didn't even know his name was Jesus. But what they knew was that God was going to send them a redeemer. They knew God was going to send them one to bring us back into relationship. And so what you see is is Hebrews chapter 11, oftentimes called the hall of faith. Those that even before Jesus arrived on the scene had faith that God had a plan of redemption for his people. And so there's these great stories in Hebrews chapter 11 that gives you this sort of uh, overview of these Old Testament characters. And then the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, meaning I just gave you all these stories of these people of faith in the Old Testament. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to understand that we live in a spiritual reality that sometimes we forget. And this is a hard concept. Some people disagree with this. I'm convinced of it because of what we see in Scripture, that there are those who have gone on before us, those who are saints in Jesus, who exist now in eternity. What Scripture seems to indicate is that they're aware of what's going on down here. And they are somehow cheering us on, wanting us to do well, wanting us to live in the faith that they lived in. Now, there are those who will challenge that idea and say, no, those who've gone before, they're not aware of what's going on on earth. They're consumed with what's going on in heaven. I challenge that not only because of scriptures like this that give evidence of it, but because we see throughout scripture the reality that God sends messengers from his realm to ours, that the spiritual world invades the physical world through not only the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, but through his angels who are created beings, and through the testimony that we see even in Jesus' own life when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, as he met with Moses and Elijah, who were obviously aware of what was going on on earth at that time. I think there's plenty of evidence for us to understand that there are those who have gone on before us, saints, those who have walked with the Lord and served Jesus and died in the faith, who are now the witnesses to what we're doing and they're praying for us and they're looking out for us in the sense of wanting us to do well in Christ and they're encouraging us in that way to, to run this race with endurance, to look to Jesus in the same way that they did. And again, I say just, just, just for safety's sake, I know there are people who would disagree with me on that statement, but I believe scripture shows that to us, that the riches that God has for us is not in silver and gold, it's in people, his saints. The third thing that Paul's pray, Paul prays back in Ephesians chapter one, that he wants God to impress and enlighten the hearts of the people to give them knowledge of, is in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul prays that the church would understand the great power that God works in us. You realize that when you are in Christ, you have power. Oh, you mean like those guys on TV that when they start yelling and shouting things and they point at things, people fall down? Can I do that? Because that would be really cool. That would be really great. Or if someone's sick, if I just shake a lot and say funny words and put my hands on them, that they're going to be healed? No, that's not, that's not power. This is, this is what is power, though. Mark down John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Perhaps you've heard the story of, of the death of Lazarus, a friend of Jesus's, the, uh, the brother of Mary and Martha. That Lazarus had died. And that he was called for by Mary and Martha, who were friends of the Lord. And they called for him and sent a messenger and asked him to come and and that their brother had been sick and that they wanted him to heal him. Jesus had done healings through the power of God to prove his, his authority. And yet Jesus waited, right? He waited a couple of days to come show up on the scene. And, and when he arrived, Lazarus had already died and been in the tomb. And this is the conversation that takes place between Martha and Jesus. Now, if you know the story at all about Martha and Mary and the differences, Martha was what we would call a busybody. She was someone who always had to have her hands in everything and she always had to be doing something. And if Jesus was on the scene, then she wanted to be doing something to prove she was part of Jesus' posse and she wanted Jesus to do stuff because then that would prove him to other people. Mary was always busy and troubled with a whole lot of things. So here's the conversation Mary and Martha have, have after Mary and Jesus have after Jesus shows up on the scene. Her brother Lazarus has died. John eleven twenty one. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's still angling. She's still hoping that Jesus does something miraculous here. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And in verse 25, John eleven twenty-five, 25, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Paul prays for the church that they would understand the great power that God works in us. And the power that God works in us is not some magical superhero spiritual power. The power that God works in us is the knowledge of Jesus and his resurrection. Not only do we have this joy and hope that Jesus is going to come back, that he's going to return for us and establish his kingdom eternally, what we have also in lieu of that, or, or, or in addition to that, I should say, is that we have the hope of resurrection. That even if we're to die, we're not going to stay dead. We have this soul that lives forever. And the state of your soul when you die is the important point. That you be in Christ. That you have believed upon Him. That you have placed your faith upon His death and His resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. When you do that, then you have no fear of death. Because of this promise of resurrection. You understand that one of the unique features about Christianity amongst all world religions 
is this concept of resurrection. It doesn't exist anywhere else. You say, well, isn't that sort of like reincarnation with Buddhists who believe in reincarnation? Nope. I'm not coming back as a caterpillar. (laughs) If karma is all about like what good you sent out into the world and receiving it back and being reincarnated in something, I'm coming back as a slug. I'll just say that. So that ain't looking too good for me. Resurrection is entirely different. We get to have our life. This is a tough concept perhaps to understand and it it takes a lot of study perhaps to understand it fully. But when when we talk about the resurrection, we're talking about you and me physically in these bodies perfected without sin. Now, I don't know what they're going to look like. I'm hoping that they're perfected like perfected, perfected because that would be (laughs) rad. That would be so great if it was just like, this is what I've been waiting for. Come on, like... The hope that we have is in the appearing of Christ, his glorious appearing. But in the meantime, before Christ comes, there's a power that you and I have. Why do we need power? Well, we need power for several things. To withstand the work of the enemy. We need power to withstand Satan, right? We need power to withstand the the drain of life on us, the hopelessness that comes from just sin and brokenness in this world. And God gives us that power through the promise of the resurrection And then Paul finishes his statement here in Ephesians, his prayer for the church. He wants us to know those three things, the hope that God has called us to, the appearing of Jesus. He wants us to know the riches of his inheritance, which is his people, the saints. And he wants us to know the great power that works in us, the power of resurrection in Christ. And then Paul finishes his prayer by saying this, That according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, verse 20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God created and established and formed this community, the church at large, to have this authority structure that Jesus is the head. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the one who is leading us. He's the one who is showing us where we're supposed to go, what we're supposed to be doing, how we're supposed to be treating one another, how we're supposed to be investing our time, talents, treasures, all of those things. Jesus is is the head of the church. But not only is he the head of the church, Paul says that Jesus fills everything. He is all in all. What that means for us as the church, as God's people, Jesus's brothers and sisters, this is what that means for us, is that Jesus is everything. Everything that we do, it's about Jesus. Everything that we're supposed to learn, it's supposed to be about Jesus. Everything we have in relationship that we feel and experience, it needs to be related back to Jesus. So when we study the Bible, it's not just some egg-headed academic study. It's supposed to be related to Jesus. When we meditate on scripture, we're supposed to be meditating on Jesus. When we evangelize, when we share Jesus with someone and say, hey, come to church, come to Bible study, let's have a time of prayer. When we, when we introduce the idea of this community to people, it's about Jesus. When we give counsel to someone and we sit with someone who needs prayer or help or, or they're troubled or they don't know what to do, regardless of what the circumstances are, we give them Jesus. This is the focus of everything that we in the church are called to do. Prayer, fellowship, everything. 
It's all about Jesus. There's that great song that we sing every once in a while. It says, Jesus is at the center of it all. Jesus is at the center of everything we're called to do as God's people, as his children, as brothers and sisters, and as the, 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 the mode that God has chosen to use in our frailty, in our brokenness, he's chosen you and me and all of his creation to say, you go take that message of hope. You go take that message of resurrection to other people and you show them that it's Jesus. If you had to choose a way, this could be a funny conversation for another time, but if you had to choose a way for God to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, would you have chosen you and me to to do that? No, not in any way, shape, or form. And I say that humbly, like I, I would have chosen the mountain thing, right? Like why didn't that work? That God there on the mountain with lightning and thunder and a cloud of smoke and miracles like, and tragic miracles like in Egypt when he sends fire from heaven or like pestilence or the, like, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be the one that you think would convince people of like who God is and his power and his might? Like he controls all of these things, right? Like, wouldn't that be, I would choose that. I would choose either that or I would choose that he would use some sort of uh, like, like, um, like world event of some kind, right? Like at the Olympics where everybody's watching on TV that all of a sudden, like a, like something would just break open the sky and there'd be like a beam of light. Like he'd be from a Star Trek thing. He'd like beam down, right? <laughs> something that would draw people's attention. And yet for whatever reason, the way God has designed it to work, it, it's you and it's me that he chose to say, here's the things I, I need you to show other people. I need you guys to go talk about Jesus. I need you to go live in such a way that when people look at you, they see Jesus. Maybe you haven't even said anything to them. And and yet they're just like, that one's different. Or they see a group of people meeting at someone's house on a Sunday morning and go, what are you guys doing? We're just worshiping Jesus, right? He's used, he's chosen to use us for whatever reason. Don't know why necessarily. Actually, I do, but it's a different Bible study. (laughs) It's because the Bible says he's chosen to use the weak and foolish things of the world, you and me, Mm -hmm. to confound the wise. How is it that we have hope? That's confusing to some people. Aren't you freaked out about corona? Aren't you freaked out about the economy? Aren't you freaked out about the politics of things? Nope, I'm not. Why? Because of Jesus. You're stupid. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. But I'm not afraid. I have no fear. Why? Because of Jesus. That's what he chooses to use you and me for. So we get to know this Jesus. We get to know this God. We get to know this plan that he has for us and how he's chosen to use us in these types of settings. Through our fellowship, one another, through the study of his word, our own private and personal meditation on God's word as we chew on it and think about it. He's also called us to know him deeply in remembering Christ's sacrifice for us. If you ever feel like you're far away from from God, if you ever feel like you're far away from Jesus and you sort of just lost the thread, Jesus, I believe in you at one point, I still believe in you, I guess, but I don't feel like I'm like tight with you. I don't feel like I'm with you. I feel like you're standing over there and I'm just kind of over here on my own. If you ever find yourself in that position, let me me ask you to, to, to ask yourself, when's the last time you took communion? When's the last time you sat? And just quietly with the bread and and the cup, stopped and remembered how it is that you even know Jesus. 
how is it that I got brought into this relationship? It was because Jesus' body was broken for you. And his blood was shed to forgive your sins. When we stop and meditate on that, boy, that puts everything into perspective. I hope that puts everything into perspective. It has for me in a way that is life-changing, and it's why I'm committed to doing communion, partaking of communion on a week-by-week basis, because the truth is I probably need it day by day. But at the very least, week by week, boy, it's good for us when we're in this fellowship together to be able to say, let's come to the table. Let's remember that the sacrifice of Jesus has placed us into God's kingdom in such a way that we can be taught by his Holy Spirit what our job is, what we're supposed to be doing.